Jason DeRoshi is the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He is a contributor and the editor of a really fascinating new book titled What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, a Survey of Jesus' Bible. The book is a full-color, illustrated survey of the Old Testament storyline from a distinctly Christ-centered and Christian perspective, because the Old Testament was where the apostles and the first disciples turned to exposit the glories of Christ. Duroshi is a Hebrew and Old Testament scholar who specializes in the book of Deuteronomy and the famous Shema found in Deuteronomy 6, which reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. In this podcast, we talk about this theme of love, vertical love for God and horizontal love for our neighbor. It's a theme that finds itself at the center of the Shema, the center of the book of Deuteronomy, the center of the law, and the center of the Old Testament and New Testament alike. And because of his proximity, DeRoshi joined me in person in the DG studio here in Minneapolis to talk about a biblical theology of love. And I began by asking him, what is the significance of love in understanding the message of the Bible? Okay, so why even talk about love? Um, it's because Jesus saw it as massively important. What's the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor. And uh, in Mark 12, he quotes the whole thing, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all. The all commandment. And we see love then, even in the new covenant, expanded uh, to say this is what the entire law was about. To get the law and the prophets means you're going to understand the golden rule. You're going to manifest love for your neighbor. So the relevance, Jesus does not see love for God as being an old covenant only thing. And just the very fact that we have a God by his very nature that he's over all things means that he is, uh, that it's just and necessary and loving for him to call us to love him with all. It's right, that is, it's just for God to call us because he is God. He's worthy of highest praise. It's necessary because if God were to call us to love something other than him, higher than him, he would no longer be God. So it's not only right, it's necessary, but then it's loving because in his call for us to love him, that's where we can know greatest joy for the longest amount of time. And it's the only place where we can enjoy salvation. Love me, love me. And God is loving us and calling us to do that. Massively relevant. Yes, so so that's why it's necessary and it's right and loving uh, for God to call us to love him. What would be the lasting significance of this point for, for the believer? It's significant for Old Covenant saints because God said that he's the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, whereas to those who don't love him, judgment. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, 9 and 10. New Covenant side, very familiar verse, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I want things to work out for good for me, but there is a, a conditional element. That condition is love for God. Massively significant that we understand what this love is about so that we can enjoy good from God. This love for God is all-embracing uh, for all of life. Explain how and why love is all-embracing from the Shema. It's an all-commandment. Many have called Deuteronomy 6.5 just that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all 
your might. To try to understand what we're getting at here, I think uh, we need to understand the heart, the soul, the might language. Heart, all throughout the Old Testament, is everything internal. Our desires, our will, our motivation is to be screaming, I love God. He's the one I'm living for. But not only that, our thoughts, how we think is to cry out love for God. Heart is internal. Everything within crying out, the Lord is one in my life. Soul is a little more tricky. We know this word from Genesis 2-7. God took a bunch of mud and then he breathed into it the breath of life and the man became a living soul, a creature. We know of this language throughout the Psalms where soul is paralleled with spirit. But in the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, that Uh, equation of what is internal, the spirit with the soul doesn't happen. Instead, soul talks about, it refers to the entire being. You can have um, dead bodies are called dead souls, Leviticus um, 21.11. Or God says he will um, dwell among his people, Leviticus 26.11. His soul, his being will not turn from them. My understanding here is that to love God with the soul is is saying more than to love him with our heart. We shouldn't think of like a circle, who we are as a person, with a hearty part, a solely part, and a mighty part. But rather, I think what's happening is that there is rather uh, overlapping concentric circles. At the core of our being, we are to love God with our heart. Then one step bigger is our soul. That is everything that is uh, in our heart, our desires, our will, our motivations, but bigger than that, it would include now our actions, our uh, words, how we treat others, our perception, everything that's connected with our being. And then we come to the word, uh, our might, as it's rendered. Now, what's weird is 298 times in the Old Testament, this word is merely an adverb, meaning very. We know it in Genesis 131. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But in this instance, it's being used as a noun, veriness. Love God with your veriness. It's only used this way one other time, 2 Kings 23, 25, when it says, Josiah turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his veriness. The Septuagint translated it, love God with all your power. The Aramaic translation said, love God um, with all your wealth or resources. And I'm not, I don't think they may, I think very likely they were uh, close on target here. If at the core, if, if I'm right, Moses starts with what's internal, then he moves to who we are as a being, then our veriness could very likely include all of the resources that we have in store to love God. So not only loving him with our desires and our thoughts, loving him with our actions and our words, but now loving him with everything that's connected with us, our car, our wife, our media, our clothing, how we treat our children, our house, everything that's connected to us is to be saying they're surrendered to God. They love God. Love for God is wholehearted, life-encompassing, community-embracing. Everywhere we go, everything we do, crying out, the Lord is one in my life. And in Deuteronomy 6, right after we get this commandment, I think it unpacks all these contexts when it says, these words that I'm commanding today should be on your heart. So they get, get inside. And not only that, teach them diligently to your children. 
talking about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you rise up and when you lie down. Not only that, I want you to bind them on your hands and, and may they be as frontlets between your eyes. May they control your actions and may they control your perceptions. And then may it influence where you dwell and where you work. Write them on the door posts of your house and write them in your gates. So uh, you have, think the book of Ruth, where Boaz and met the other re- potential redeemer. They met in the gate. And that's where commerce happened. It's where the politics happened. And this is to be governing all that's to be happening there. The all command is all-encompassing. And it's to influence everything. Incredible. And you've talked about love for God. And um, how does our all-encompassing love for God relate to our horizontal love, this love we are to display to our neighbor? Well, we see the connection between love for God and love for neighbor uh, no more clearly in Deuteronomy than in Deuteronomy 10. God says, And now, Israel, what does Yahweh require from you but to fear the Lord to walk in his ways, to love him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So there's the the connection with the supreme commandment, the love commandment. Love him with all your heart and with all your soul. And then, um, as if Moses just wanted Israel to understand the significance of what it would mean to love God, to serve God with all, he goes on and he explains only one commandment. What he unpacks is... I, what I think would be the chief example of, for, for people to look at themselves, am I indeed loving God? And so what he does is he first says, okay, I've called you to love God with your heart. You have a heart problem. So he says in 1016, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. At the core of Israel's being was not love, At the core of their being was stubbornness, hardness. They were going to need a heart surgery in order to see themselves different. Now, where where Moses is going is he's going to say love for neighbors, specifically a love for the broken, for the widow, for the poor, for the orphan. That's how we're going to test whether you love God. So where he goes is this, right after circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn, he says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. So we see that love for the broken is not only a heart issue, it's an idolatry issue. If they're going to love the way God calls them to love, they're going to have to see their heart changed And they're going to have to understand who God is rightly. Not only is it an idolatry issue, love for God manifest in love for the broken is about being like God. So what he says next at the end of 1017 and then into 1018, he says, This God who's over all things is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love for the broken is about being like God, looking like he looks. He's a God who loves the hurting, and if you really love me, you're going to begin to image me. You're going to reflect me and represent me and resemble me by loving those that I love. God is willing to love the most unlovable. Now, just moving apart from just deep theology to practical theology, I feel like it's only in the last 
um, few years that my own family has been understanding what it means to love God more. And I'm on a journey, but we opened up our hearts to international adoption. We've brought three children home from Ethiopia, and this has not been easy. It's been a journey of self-breaking by God's gift. Um, seeing, it, it's a hard thing to love those who um, have been hurt so deeply. And God is saying, if you love me, you're going to have lives that are characterized by not moving away from the hurting, but reaching out to the hurting. And I feel like I'm only beginning to learn what that means. Love for God is a hard issue. Love for the broken is a hard issue. Love for the broken is an idolatry issue. Love for the broken is about being like God. And then love for the broken is about loving as we have been loved. 10.19 says, Right after it says, God is this kind of a love, it says, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Israel had experienced unbelievable love for God when they were broken. So love for the broken is about loving as we ourselves have been loved. And what we're seeing here is a a pattern that is then emulated, a pattern of argumentation that's emulated by the New Testament apostles and by Jesus. You love because you yourself were first loved by me. Finally, love for the broken is a miracle of grace. And this is so foundational for the theology of Deuteronomy. God calls his people to love him, but the very people he's calling to love him with the whole heart are a people that he hasn't enabled to love him with the whole heart. When he looks at them, the three words that are most common in Deuteronomy is that they are stubborn, they are rebellious, and they're unbelieving. They don't have faith. For example, in Deuteronomy 9, this is what we read. Verse 6 and 7, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess Israel because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. That's the same word that we read in 10.16 when he says, Circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. They are stubborn. And then Moses says in 9 verse 7, Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came up out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious. So we've got stubbornness and rebelliousness. Then jump to verse 23. And when the Lord your God sent you from Kadesh Barnea saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe. There's the third word, unbelief. When Paul says in Galatians 3.12 that the law is not of faith, it doesn't mean God didn't call for it. It means that the people were faithless. The people who received the great call to love God, it never reached their heart. It never changed them from within. And Deuteronomy 29.4 tells us why. God has not given you eyes to see or ears to hear or a heart to know him. But the amazing promise of Deuteronomy is that he one day would. And that's the age we're living in. The age that Moses anticipated when he said in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And he will make you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. In in the biblical storyline, there's a move, obviously, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant in Christ. Uh, what changes are, are made to love in the New Covenant, if anything? How does, it, how does love change? Yeah, the, the transfer from the Old to the New is nothing we can just leap from. Just because the Old Covenant called us to love God, now we should love God. 
The missing element is power. Power. How do we love God? And not only that, how can God justifiably pardon us? And so the answer, I think, is bound up in biblical theology. Uh, There is a word that Paul uses only three times in Romans. It's called dikaioma, and it's translated in various ways in the ESV, uh, the righteous requirement, the precepts. And I want to use that word to build a bridge because it's going to get us to Romans 13 where Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We want to be law fulfillers. The new covenant is not a lawless covenant. It's a covenant wherein the law has now been written on our hearts and we're empowered to be people that the old covenant um, members for the majority could not be. So how do we get there? Number one, Deuteronomy 4 verse 1. The old covenant call is this. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live. That word statutes in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is our word for is dikaioma the plural of dikaioma. Keep the statutes in order that you can continue to live in relationship with me. But Israel didn't. Indeed, Moses says, Deuteronomy 31, I know how rebellious you are, how stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders and the tribes and and the officers, that I may teach these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you. That's the covenant curses, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Moses had no sense that Israel's future was positive. In fact, he predicted that the old covenant would, be a, would have a ministry of condemnation. It called for the right thing. Keep the statutes. Love God with your heart. But it didn't enable what God called for. But everything changes now. Ezekiel 36, 27. I'll put my spirit in you. New covenant text. I'll put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Statutes there. So the new covenant is going to be characterized by a people who keep the statutes. God won't only command it, he will enable it by the power of his spirit. Ultimately, the spirit of the resurrected Christ. Now we move to messianic fulfillment. Before I move to the call for me to to be a law fulfiller, the law of love, I want to see that Jesus is the one who ultimately loved God perfectly. And on that basis, I have pardon and then a pattern to follow and power enabled to be the love, the lover that God's called me to be. Romans chapter 5, 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness, dikaioma, leads to the justification and life for all men. Jesus inaugurates the new covenant by keeping the statutes. He embodies in his life perfect obedience. That is, he was the perfect lover of God and of neighbor. And now we move to Romans 8. So Dikaioma shows up in Romans 5. It shows up in Romans 8, verse 4. But here's how we get to Romans 8, 4. Therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ Jesus is to be justified. That is what it said in 5.18, through one act of righteousness, it leads to the justification of life for all men. 
So there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Jesus has been the ultimate lover, and now we have no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened as it was by the flesh, that's old covenant, called for a good thing, but God didn't change the heart. The law by itself could not do it, but God did it by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. Through his perfect obedience, he was able to go to the cross as a substitute for us, not bearing his own sin, but bearing our sin. Through his perfect righteousness, he proved that uh, he was the perfect lover of God. His faith overflowed in perfect obedience, and that's all transferred to us. In the great exchange, our sin goes to him, his righteousness comes to us, and it's not only a righteousness in the past, but it's a righteousness that produces something, sanctification. So we get to the, in order that, of 8.4, in order that the righteous requirement, the dikaioma of the law, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now let's just see how this works. Verse 3 talks about Jesus condemning sin in the flesh through his 518 act of righteousness. His one act of righteousness secured justification for us. And because his act of righteousness secured our justification, it was done in order that now we might actually fulfill the act of righteousness, the righteous requirement of the law, not by the flesh, but by the Spirit, the Spirit of the resurrected Christ in us. Now, Paul, here's our bridge to love. Paul in Romans 8 uses the word to fulfill. The law is to be fulfilled in us. And the next time he uses that is in Romans 13 when he says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love. There's something about the gospel that creates in us an obligation to love. We who've experienced such amazing love from God are now compelled in light of that love to love others. That's the only thing we owe to anyone is love in light of the amazing love that we've been shown. So Jesus is our pardon through his perfect loving of God and neighbor. He supplies our pardon. But then with that, What's clear is he provides the pattern. So we get texts like John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this will people know that you're my disciples. Or John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Jesus' love for us shown in his perfect obedience, which satisfied God's wrath against our sin and made a way for us to enjoy righteousness. That love is the pattern in which we should walk. But it's not only a pattern, we need power. And that's where the spirit of the resurrected Christ becomes the fuel for us to be the lovers that God's called us to be. We can only love the broken. The, the, the true example that we love God, go into the messy world of caring for the hurting when we've encountered the glorious gospel of grace. Christ's perfect love secures our pardon, provides the pattern, and ultimately, because his love moves all the way through the resurrection, 
through Pentecost and comes into our hearts by the presence of the Spirit, it's that same love that provides the power for us to be the people God's called us to be. The Old Testament law and uh, the Ten Commandments seem to model love for us. What role does the law in the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments play in informing love in the Christian life? Yeah, good question. Uh, On the one hand, it's part of the written code that never reached Israel's heart. It was an old covenant gift, this Ten Commandments, and therefore I'm not under that law. And it doesn't directly connect to me, except through Jesus. Jesus comes, and this is how I understand Matthew 5. I'm going to find this text. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish, but to fulfill. Then Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What are these commandments? That's a big question. My thinking is that these commandments are directly related to the laws that Moses gave, but now fulfilled in Christ. The Old Covenant Ten Commandments only reach us as New Covenant believers, and they do provide us a pattern, a clear picture of what love for God and love for neighbor is, but they only do so through the fulfillment that has come in Jesus. And so every law in the Old Testament, we have to filter through the lens of Christ's fulfillment. And I could go on and give some examples of that, but we can't just say because the Ten Commandments call us to not commit adultery, therefore I'm not supposed to commit adultery because that's old covenant law. What we have to do is say, would anything have changed through the coming of Christ? One thing that did change is power. We have a remarkable pattern for not committing adultery and we have a new kind of power for not committing adultery. But when I go to the Sabbath command, I think that gets transformed a little bit more. The short of it is the the Ten Commandments do provide a picture of what love for God and love for neighbor meant for the people in that day. And then we say, well, what would it mean for us in light of the coming of Christ, who is the perfect embodiment of all love for God and love for neighbor? And then we have to, so we sift it through him and then we can make applications because Paul's convinced that all scripture is not only God-breathed, it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. And when he said that, he just got done telling Timothy, you grew up with a Jewish mother and grandmother who taught you the holy, the sacred writings that are able to make you wise unto salvation. He's talking about the Old Testament to Timothy. The very word that in, when he says in chapter 4, verse 1, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, preach the word, Tim. Well, what word was Paul preaching? He was preaching the Old Testament. So somehow Paul was able to preach the Old Testament even from the law. I think of Peter. I think it's 1 Peter 2, um, sorry, 1 Peter 1, when he says, be holy because, diati, because it is written, be holy as I am holy. He says, New Covenant Church, be holy because it's written back there. But I think he's only able to say that in light of how he's understanding Christ's fulfillment. Hmm. So obviously the display of love has a community aspect to it. Um, 
genuine love is a love that the world takes note of too. There seems to be a missional dimension to our love, or so it seems from passages like John 13, 34, and 35. How, How is love connected to mission? This connection between love and missions, I think it starts most explicitly in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 when God says, okay, keep this law that I'm giving you, the statutes and the rules, keep it because that will be your wisdom in the sight of the nations who will see this law and say, oh, what an amazing people that has a God so near as they do, as Israel does. And what an amazing people that has a law so upright as this, that calls people to radical love, not And here is an example of the Ten Commandments. It's amazing that the Ten Commandments do not focus on what I deserve from others, but what others deserve from me. If you were to think of them as a bill of rights, the Ten Commandments are not a bill of my rights. It's a bill of other people's rights. God's deserving of my love. My neighbor's deserving of my love. And that is wild. Um, It calls people... a man to not commit adultery with another man's wife. It never calls a wife to not commit adultery with another woman's husband. It looks at, when it talks about the Sabbath command, it does it from a perspective of heads of households who will have sons and daughters, male servants and female servants, cattle. It's talking to heads of households, male heads of households, and it is confronting all abuses. A true leader in God's eyes, is one who loves God and loves his neighbor, who's not living for the benefit of himself, but living for the benefit of everyone else. That's how the community of God is supposed to exist. And Jesus is the perfect model of the true leader. On the night that he was betrayed, he knelt down, he took a towel, and no one questioned who the leader was in the room. The perfect servant was the leader. And all of us are called to follow that pattern with the power supplied by the one who gave us the pardon. Hmm. Amen. So Jason, speak to a Christian who's listening to this podcast and who's giving a hearty amen to the biblical theology of love, but then he looks at his own heart, and I look at my own heart, and I see such a lack of love there for others, and even for God. Um, As we conclude, do you have any encouragements that you would have for us from Scripture to motivate us to love God and to love others? Oh, that is so important. Uh, When I talk about the love for God, I feel absolutely um, stripped because I know I'm not loving him how I should. I'm not loving my wife and my children how I should, loving my neighbors how I should, and it pushes me back to the cross. That's where I have to go. Love for God will takes blood-bought miracle power. And so I rest in the gospel that Christ was the perfect one, and therefore, although God is doing a work in me, it's not the ground for him to be for me. But God is 100% for me. I live in that context. And then I go to the God. Out of that gospel, I'm going to find fuel for love. And I think 1 Timothy 1.5 is a great text for seeing how this works. So 1 Timothy 1.5 Paul has charged Timothy, I want you to charge others in your church to stick to the true gospel, to not depart to any different doctrine. So keep the pure gospel. And then he says the aim of the charge is love. So the reason that I teach the gospel is to see people turn into lovers of God and lovers of neighbor. That's why I'm a preacher. 
because I want to see love birth because love magnifies the worth of God. Not only when I'm loving him directly, like in a worship service or in my prayer and devotional time, but when I'm cherishing his image in others, God is being made much of, especially when I cherish his image in those who are tough to love. And 1 Timothy 1.5 tells me how to get there. Here's what it says. The aim of the charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So I say, God wants me to love. That's why I'm bathed in the gospel. And then he tells me where it's going to come from. Number one, a pure heart. This is amazing. Out of the heart flows everything. The heart is the wellspring of life. And that includes love. Love will issue from the heart. And that's why in the new covenant, we need new hearts. Because the old heart wasn't able to produce love. But we need the heart of stone to be taken out and God to give us a new heart that's vibrant, that has new desires, new hungers, namely to honor him. And what Paul says is not only do we need a new heart, we need a pure heart. The heart has to be a heart that's been cleansed. Lovers, in the definition that Paul's giving, are only those who have encountered the love of God through sins forgiven. My love for neighbor is a blood-bought love. It issues from a pure heart. I've encountered the uh, sin-overcoming, mercy-empowering grace of God. That's what makes me a lover. So I'm struggling to love my wife. I go to the cross and I, I, I recognize, oh, I am sinful to the core. I need you, Jesus. You have loved me. And all of a sudden, I have fuel to love those that are unlovable because I'm recognizing how, how I myself was unlovable and God reached in. Along with a pure heart, a good conscience. Consciences in the Bible are those things that... Um, tell us whether we're doing good or not doing good. We can have seared consciences. We can have defiled consciences or we can have clean consciences or good consciences. It's, it's when we hear something and we say, ah, that's right, or no, that's not right. There's, that's something in my soul. And Paul is saying it's from a good conscience that we will become lovers. Just a few verses later, he says, I'm the worst of sinners. How could this worst of sinners engage in a call, calling others to love God? It's because he had been cleansed. He had been transformed. His conscience was clean. Yes, I might be the greatest of sinners, but I have encountered the greatest of mercy. And in that context, then, I have a power to love. I might... Uh, say we don't approach love by saying I'm better than someone else. No, we approach them by saying, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am broken, but I am forgiven. My conscience is good. I'm not seeking my betterment at your expense. I'm not seeking to lift myself up. No, my conscience is clean. I am doing this for the glory of God. And all of a sudden, I'm fueled in my love. Finally, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. When Paul says sincere, he's talking unhypocritical kind of faith. So what is faith? Receiving all that God is for us in Jesus. Being satisfied in all that God is for us for Jesus. Faith is the one thing we do that takes the spotlight off of us, puts it all on what God has supplied. Faith is about insufficiency in of ourselves and absolute trust in the sufficiency that Christ has bought. That's the context where love happens. So I'm struggling with bitterness. 
I've been hurt and abused. How do I gain the power to love? It's only going to come when I tap into the ultimate power. I have to do it with sincere, true faith, saying, God, I am weak, but you are strong, and you at the cross supplied all the power I need to be the kind of lover that I need to be. To enter into the adoption world, you're entering into a world with a big question mark. Is this going to go easy or is it going to be hard? Is this child going to grow to celebrate what we have offered? Or is this child going to grow to hate us and point fingers at us and yell at us? Are we going to take our perfect peaceful home and make it into a place of chaos? We have no idea. Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, faith Some, by faith, they conquered armies. By faith, they rose people from the dead. By faith, they were sawn in two. By faith, they were martyred, of whom the world is not worthy. We don't know which way our faith is going to go, but we need our faith to be good, sincere, unhypocritical faith that is trusting all that God has supplied for us in Jesus. And that's where love is birthed. So starting with our call to love from the pardon that Christ has secured, recognizing the pattern that he has given, only in that context is, does power come. So I think Paul is saying, yes, be good lovers. He's talking to people who, thought, who, who were told in verse 7 of 1 Timothy 1, they wanted to be teachers of the law. But he says they hadn't even arrived at what the law was pointing to, love. How do we arrive there? We do it by bathing ourselves in the gospel. We have to focus on what Jesus has done, what he has secured and then trusting what he will enable through blood-bought promises, we become loving. Our joy in Christ, our delight in all that God has secured for us, saying, this is whom I'm called to be. I am on this world to magnify the greatness of God shown to us in love. Every decision I make, every encounter I have is about loving God, overflowing in love of neighbor. The fuel for loving neighbor in a self-sacrificial way that says, regardless of the cost, I will engage in this, is our joy, our satisfaction in God. That was Jason DeRoshi, the Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis. He is a contributor and the editor of the new book titled, What the Old Testament Authors Really Cared About, a Survey of Jesus' Bible. John Piper enthusiastically endorsed the book. He writes this, quote, How could I not enjoy a book that the editor says is designed as a springboard for delight in God, the supreme Savior, sovereign, and satisfier of the world? Jason DeRoshi has a sure hand when it comes to guiding a team of scholars, the aroma of his God-centered, Christ-exalting comments permeate this survey. I would happily put this in the hands of every church member. End quote. That's very high praise. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis, and it happens because we have generous financial donors like you. So thank you. Subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org forward slash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.